Good morning. My name is Tom Marsala. I have been the music director slash worship pastor here for the last 25 years. Uh, that either means congratulations or yay, we can't wait to get you out of here. Well, this is either a dream come true for me or uh, perhaps a nightmare realized. My church nightmares usually go something like this. It's uh, 8.15 or so. You're all standing ready for the sermon to happen or the music to happen. The praise band's playing a song I don't know, and I forgot the PowerPoint. So I'm running up and down the aisle trying to figure out what I'm doing. And then I wake up in a cold sweat and then usually repeat that every week or so. But you'll know for the last 25 years, I've never had a nightmare about preaching, not even a consideration. But Pastor Jason tasked me this morning to bring the Word of God and what it says on worship, and I'm honored to do so. Now, I'm loosely basing this message on an outline from a book called The Unquenchable Worshipper by Matt Redman. You might know Matt. He's written several of the songs we enjoy singing here, like um, 10,000 Reasons, Heart of Worship, which we sang a few weeks ago, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus, and Holy, to name a few. So let me start by asking, what is worship? Is it a verb? Is it a noun? Is it an adjective? We certainly use it in all these ways. Uh, we went to worship this morning. That would be its noun form. Or what a beautiful worship service that was. That would be its adjective form. Or I love to worship the Lord. That would be its verb form. And it's ubiquitous in its usage for sure. We use it kind of to describe anything that's churchy. It's become a major vocabulary word in our Christianese language. And even though it's misused, sometimes it's still understood in a vague sort of way in terms of what we're talking about. And we're still not quite sure that if we were nailed down or if I was even nailed down, I could actually define it well. There's probably five times as many books written about worship than there are definitions. So the question is, how do we define it? Well, someone once said that we worship that which is worthy of our attention or deserves our honor. That is, we, we worship what is worthy to be worshipped. And that's kind of like a circular definition, so it doesn't really satisfy me too much because we're using worship within our worthiness definition. In early Mesopotamia, to gain favor with the gods, people would actually blow kisses to their gods to show devotion and respect in fact, one Greek word used frequently for worship in the New Testament is proskuneo, which literally means to kiss towards or to blow a kiss. I think about my grandchildren a lot as they're driving out the driveway. I blow them little kisses as they leave. And what am I really saying? I'm saying, I love you. I wish I were going with you. Um, I acknowledge my love for you. And my understanding that I am yours and you are mine, it, it links us together, doesn't it? When we blow kisses to one another. And you're like, really? All that in a blown kiss? It's like, well, originally, yes. Uh, to, to wax eloquently here a little bit, bear with me. In the old English form, the word was actually worth Skype. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. And the suffix Skype from worth means shape or a form or a state of being. And so from that, I've kind of titled my sermon, A Lifestyle 
of worship or worship as a lifestyle. Since worship really is, by definition, a state of being. So that's enough entomology here. Warren Wiersbe defines worship like this. Worship is the response of all that we are, heart, mind, soul, and emotion, to all that God is. And I love what William Temple says. Worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, to open the heart to the love of God, and to devote the will to the purpose of God. Perhaps the most revealing definition that really applies to us today that I want you to take note of in your notes, this is where I want you to fill in, is what Josh Riley says. So if you would write this down as we put it up here on the screen. Worship is everything that we think, everything that we say, everything that we do, revealing that which we treasure and value the most in life. And so that is why I've titled this message, Worship as a Lifestyle, because it's more than what we just do here on a Sunday morning and why we're here. So I really have to ask myself on a daily basis, uh, what do I spend my time doing? What do I spend my time listening to? What does my lifestyle look like? What is the worth that I present to others? What are my idols? What do I spend my money on? What do I think about? And where does the Almighty God fit into my kissing towards, my blowing kisses, if you will? I think one of the greatest misunderstandings of worship is when we talk about music as worship. How many times have I, have I heard or, or even said myself, hey, we're going to pray and then we're going to do some worship. It's like, some worship? Isn't that everything? Shouldn't worship be the entire course of events that we do all day? Well, of course. But we've morphed our description into that worship is music, when music is such a small aspect of what we do each day and on Sunday mornings. But music is certainly God-made, don't get me wrong. It is distinctively human. Its primary purpose was and is to praise God. If you go to Job 38, verse 7, as God is reprimanding Job, we are privy to that moment in creation when the morning stars sang and the angels shouted for joy. And there's singing involved there. And of course, music throughout history of the Christian church has become one of the foremost ways of expressing our love and our hearts to God. So yes, music can be worship, but music does not define worship. In modern times, especially since the, the Jesus movement of the late 60s and the early 70s, when we broke away from hymns and we started doing more choruses based on scriptures or choruses that were what some people call God is my boyfriend songs, we sing love songs to God, maybe songs that seemed a little less deep perhaps, we begin to break up into song preferences. Pastor Jason alluded to this a couple of weeks back when he opened the sermon series on worship. Hymn people were over here, chorus people were over here. They even broke up into various denominations and began celebrating because of that preference. I even went to a church when I was younger that would not sing choruses Sunday mornings because, as the pastor said, well, the lost are here, 
And, and they won't get saved if we sing choruses. So we have to sing the hymns from the hymn book. The unregenerate people, he called them, cannot listen to choruses and be saved. But it's not about our preference. It actually doesn't even matter what we want. Correct? Ah. What is God's preference? What is God like? David said in Psalm 29, Ascribe to the Lord, O mighty ones, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of His holiness. I don't know about you, but that old 70s chorus comes to mind when I start singing that. For those of you who are older and might remember that, So the Lord deserves it all. We should be assigning everything to Him. It's like the beauty of His holiness. Where is that? What is that? The great commentator Matthew Henry said this way, In the worship of God, we must have an eye to His beauty and adore Him, not only as the infinitely awful and therefore to be feared above all, but as the infinitely amiable and therefore to be loved and delighted in above all. Especially we must have an eye to the beauty of His holiness. There it is. This the angels fasten upon in their praises. Now I want to look at what the Word of God says about worship. And after all, God is the author of all, the Creator, the one who's worthy of our attention, the one who is worthy to be praised. And so I want you to open your Bibles or go to your app and look at John 4 starting at verse 1. John chapter 4, starting at verse 1. I want to read everything to verse 24, but the majority of our text will be towards the end. But let's start reading here at verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. And it was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, You have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to even come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, 
and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I, I perceive you were a prophet. Our fathers worshipped, worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Amen. So forgive my ancient history. I am a math teacher after all, not a history teacher. But from what I understand, the Samaritans were ancient Jews who were not a part of the Assyrian conquest in 722 B.C. So when the Jews came back to their land eventually, they wanted nothing to do with the Samaritans because at that, by that time they had already intermarried with foreigners. They had... Um, become idolaters and idol worshipers and have incorporated that into their worship. The Samaritans did consider themselves, though, to be the observant ones who worshipped on Mount Gerizim, and they felt Moses commanded them to do that. And they also felt that Moses wanted them to protect that mountain as the place of worship. So they received the law of Moses, but they really rejected the prophets. So they were ignorant in their worship and and like I said, incorporated idolatry. And this is what Jesus was saying when he said, you worship what you do not know. Pointing to himself, we worship what we know as the Jews because we observe the law and the prophets. But look at verse 23 again. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. See, the woman thought that worship had to take place in a certain geographical area, in this case, Mount Gerizim. We think that's kind of ridiculous now, but how often do we equate worship with Sunday mornings? With when we come, we come to worship, and then when we leave, we're done. I'm not trying to say that on Sunday mornings, worship doesn't happen. Don't get me wrong, that's a whole other sermon. But according to Jesus, if we think we've got worship covered by coming here this morning, then we've got it all wrong. So no, it has nothing to do with location anymore. So what did Jesus mean by worshiping in spirit and truth? I think this is our, our heart and our head. Spirit being here, truth being up here. Truth is sound doctrine. We agree with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We agree with God's plan of salvation, that it is the only way to eternal life. We are engaged with the Father and the Son and their plan to rescue sinful man. What about spirit? I mean, our spirit owes its existence to the vibrancy of God's own spirit. In his book, Desiring God, John Piper writes the following. He says, True worship comes only from spirits made alive and sensitive by the quickening of the Spirit of God. Emotional reaction to God without solid biblical truth is really nothing but loud experience and shallow responses. And cerebral reaction to God without 
without emotion can produce dead rituals and orthodoxy. It's filled with self-righteous Phariseeism, if that's even a word. I don't know if that's a word or not. So it's not what we do with our ritual Sunday morning works, but rather what we do with our hearts and our heads, our emotions and our thoughts, spirit and truth. Romans 12.1 I beseech you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable what? Act of worship. Some translation says your reasonable service. This translation says your reasonable act of worship. What is happening in our lives every day and how we respond to our life and to our God is our worship. Living sacrifices, not sacrifices that are trying to crawl off the altar because we're in fear of pain and suffering, because we're scared of the coronavirus, but kissing towards the one who has placed us on that altar. And that sounds a little like Dr. Street's sermon a couple of months back when he talked about kissing the hand of discipline, right? So what does it look like to have a lifestyle of worship? If I am to demonstrate a lifestyle of worship, then I want to be a worshiper that is the following. I want to be unquenchable in my worship. This is one who is so amazed by God that no situation or circumstance can quench their desire for him. Remember Acts 16 when Paul and Silas were experiencing, what would you say, less than favorable, favorable circumstances in prison? What did they do? They broke out in song. They, they worshiped God with everything that they had left in their physical bodies, which probably wasn't much. Consider David in his trials. In Psalm 40, David says, I waited and he heard my cry, for, and I'm, I'm condensing this quite a bit. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me. I cannot see. They are more than the hairs on my head. My heart fails me. In verse 12, but may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Look at, the, look at the difference. Look at the complaining and the crying. And then, may all who seek you rejoice and be glad. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. Kind of comes out of nowhere, doesn't it? When we consider our trials and our own situations, we complain to the Lord, and that's okay, he wants us to. But David always ends all these psalms with great is the Lord. It's a praise. He ends with a praise. Consider David in his sicknesses. In Psalm 6, he says uh, about God hearing him, he says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. And then look, but you, O Lord, how long? The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. He ends with that promise that he knows God is there and hears him. In Psalm 41, which is really a, a psalm of God's justice, after listing how his enemies have belittled him and betrayed him, look how David ends the psalm in verse 13. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Truth and truth. Okay, that word amen means truth. Now, the majority of that psalm is complaining and airing his laundry to the Lord. Look, Lord, what they're doing to me. Don't you know? But he ends it with this, which is a promise of blessing to the Lord in truth. 
Of all weeks to get sick for me this year was two weeks ago, which is why you didn't see me last week. I was supposed to preach last week, and I appreciate Jason filling in for me. Tons of material to get through at work, a sermon to prepare for and finish. The Sunday before, immediately after the service, I began to lose my voice. I noticed it in the last song that my voice was a little hoarse, a little dry. And as soon as I got home, it was like no voice at all. Monday, I came down with a fever. Tuesday, I had to take work off for the whole week with a throat that was so sore. And some of you have had this sore throat where it feels like you're swallowing glass. I had to beg the doctor for drugs. I mean, drugs, capital D drugs, not just like ibuprofen drugs. And she was gracious and she gave me some. But I was ending my days not like David. I mean, literally, I will tell you how I ended my night in my psalm of ranting. These are quotes from Tom. Are you, are you serious, Lord? What are you doing? Why would you give me a month to prepare a sermon on worship just to allow me to get the flu? Now, I don't think it was coronavirus, so I think I'm okay. As an avid astronomer, don't you think I would have remembered who binds the chains of the Pleiades and who loosens the cords of Orion, as God told Job? I could hear God saying, well, stupid Tom, maybe it was to get you to spend more time in my word and write this additional point in your sermon, because this wasn't in my original sermon at the time. And it took me until Monday evening to trust the Lord that he gave me this message for some reason, whether it was to, live, to deliver it last week or not. I got to live this thing out the whole week, and this whole week following as well, as the Lord continues to heal me. My voice still isn't 100%, but it's almost there. He's teaching me through this, this event, causing me to reflect back on this sermon and rewrite some passages. It's like scratch, scratch, scratch. What am I writing? What am I saying? When Fanny Crosby was six weeks old, she went blind, but she vowed to be content with whatever the Lord put on her plate. And when she was eight, she wrote this song. Eight, a blind eight-year-old. Oh, what a happy soul am I, although I cannot see. I am resolved that in this world contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep, to sigh, because I'm blind? I can't. And I won't. It's Fanny Crosby. Now she went on to write many more hymns. In fact, 8,000 more hymns. Some you may remember. Blessed Assurance. Praise Him, praise Him. Jesus is calling. He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock. Those are all Fanny Crosby hymns that, that are dear to this church. An unquenchable worshiper, even though overwhelmed by troubles, is more overwhelmed by God's beauty. Let's read Psalm 8 and Psalm 19. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth who has set your glory above the heavens. When I consider the heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon, the stars, what is man? Who am I? Or Psalm 19, the heavens declare God's glory and the earth shows his handiwork. Day to day, utter speech, night to night reveals knowledge. So the unquenchable worshiper is not deterred by daily events that keep them down. They focus on God's praise and on his amiability and his love for them. Next point I want you to fill in is that a, a true worshiper is to be undone. 
You remember in, in Isaiah, was before the throne of God in his vision. He had a moment of discomfort and soul-searching. He said, woe unto me, for I am undone when he saw God's glory. This worshiper is the one who's broken over his sin, realizing that his, his pithy little attitudes, like mine two weeks ago, about his life have, have offended the God of the universe. God undoes us in so many different ways, whether through our physical suffering, whether through our spiritual suffering. But he doesn't leave us that way. Weeping may endure for a night, David says in Psalm 30, but joy comes in the morning. His hand of discipline turns into a hand of tenderness and mercy as he leads us on through this life. In Psalm 51, verse 17, he says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. He goes on in verse 15, and guess how he ends it. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. Again, ending a huge confession with a declaration of praise. Are you getting the theme here about how we are to worship God each day? A true worshiper is also to not just be unquenchable or undone, but also undignified. What does that mean? Well, this is a worshiper who cares so deeply about his expression of love for his Lord that he cares little about his reputation or his status. Did you know that the Hebrew word for praise, halal, which is our word, hallelujah, actually means to clamorously, to be clamorously foolish or mad before the Lord? That should remind you of a story about David in 2 Samuel 6 when he danced wildly before the Lord as they were bringing the ark into Jerusalem. And he was so over, overwhelmed with joy that he took off his clothes, his outer garment, and began dancing like a fool, according to his wife. And his wife says, I could see her standing there saying, oh, how the king of Israel has honored himself today, uncovering himself before the eyes of his servants as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And look at David's response in 2 Samuel. He says, he didn't say, shut up, woman. He said, I will make myself yet more contentable than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. And unfortunately, um, Michael didn't have any children after that. The Lord kind of judged her for that. Now, we don't swing from the ceiling here at RBC. There is something to be said about getting excited about worshiping, though. So abandoned in our love for him that it makes us, I don't know, giddy? Exploding with whatever your heart feels the need to do? This is our heart of worship, that we don't concern ourselves with those around us, at church, or even outside these walls. Can people tell we are Christ followers at work, or at school, or at home, or in the, in the store? The leadership has been accused here at RBC for being a little stuffy and rigid. And I agree. I am probably the worst offender in that, as much as I don't want to be. Yeah, we do need to lighten up a little bit. But all of us, and not to achieve some image of some culturally satisfying church. No, but to be a God-satisfying body of believers. Believers who will stop at nothing to demonstrate 
our heart of our loving worship for our God and our Father, kissing towards him, not being afraid to blow him a kiss in public. That is an undignified worshiper. Fourthly, a worshiper is not just to be unquenchable or undone or undignified, but unpredictable. What does this mean? Well, I see this as one who is ready to worship at any time, anywhere, without regard to their schedule. Not just on Sundays, not just at night, not just in your morning time. This is one who can drop to his knees physically and spiritually or mentally at any time to kiss towards the Lord or pray. Do you remember the woman in Mark 14 who came into where the disciples were and poured out that expensive perfume on Jesus' feet? She spent significant time there. Didn't say a word. She just came in, broke it, rubbed his feet, wiped it with her hair. The disciples' reaction? They mocked her. Could not this perfume have been sold for such and such an amount? And Jesus said, no, leave her alone, for she has done a beautiful thing for me. To Jesus, this unpredictable act was an act of love and devotion to him. Of course, it was in preparation for his burial, but it was an act of worship. As she kissed his feet, those were sweet kisses to the Son of God. We tend to get caught in these cynical religious rules of play that when someone comes along who doesn't know the rules, we don't know how to react. We get really uncomfortable. We might mock. Say, oh, we don't do it that way. And yet to the Lord, it might be a sweet act of worship for him. Shouldn't our relationship with the living God be new and fresh every day like his mercies are to us? Let's allow the Holy Spirit to add a little spontaneity to our worship each day, not just here in church. Again, I'm not talking about jumping up and running up and down the pews. But I'm talking about if you're driving down the highway and a song comes to mind, sing it. Sing it out loud. Or if you're in prayer and someone comes to mind, pray that prayer for that person. The Lord is working on you there that way for a reason. As he leads, let's follow him in that. Fifthly, a true worshiper is to be one that is unnoticed. Now I'm going to ask you a question. It might be a little uncomfortable. How often are you distracted by others sitting next to you today in the worship service? It could be their phones. Someone could be checking their Amazon orders. Has it, been, has it arrived yet? Uh, someone's eating or drinking coffee. Someone might be lifting their hands during a song and your eyes go there and, and you're thinking, that looks so out of place. Why is that person doing that? We could be distracted by so much in a service. In Matthew 6, 6, Jesus instructs us, but when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. And then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. When I look around at the culture today, and I... I mean church culture. I'm overwhelmed by the amount of bling. Do you know that word, bling? It's fancy stuff. It's excluded from, it's exuded, rather, from stages and concert halls and many churches even in our own valley. Don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to judge worship leaders or the way some churches handle their singing in the morning. But Oftentimes, a lot of stuff that we put under the banner of worship is really just drawing attention to ourself or trying to achieve that sound or 
that direction or that way of doing it that is popular in so many videos that we see in music videos. Rather than things pointing to Jesus Christ, who is the author of our worship. And whether I'm, I'm here or in my chair at 4.30 in the morning, it's a sacred time. And it's about God, not me. My prayer for us so often is that we, even as a worship band up here, and I so appreciate my band. They're here each week. They come each Tuesday to practice. But they're not here for you. And they're not here to entertain. They're really here to minister to all of us, to draw our attention to God Almighty through the songs. They want you to focus your attention on the words on the screen so that those words can meld your heart to God. That's why I love it when I see a person that has been here maybe for a year, and I've never really formally met them, but I will go and I'll ask them their name, and they'll say, oh, and what's your name again? It's like, ha, job done. I've been completely unnoticed. I've been in front of you every, every week as the pastor of music, and you don't know my name. That's a good thing. So I have to kind of check myself and say, that's okay, Tom, that they don't know your name. Sixthly, a true worshiper is to be one that is completely unsatisfied. Well, not completely, but unsatisfied at least. We have only glimpsed God's glory, folks. We are for sure unfinished worshipers in a broken land. We are aliens in this land longing for our new home in heaven. And at least as I get older, the more I long for my real home. I mean, consider the Samaritan woman as she experienced Jesus through that narrative that we read just in John 4, just a few moments ago. Look at her progression of her confession. She says, are you greater than our father Jacob? Well, she's understanding the humanity of the person she's talking to. And then that morphs into, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet after a little more Q&A and a little more digging. And, and now she's seeing that he was more than just a man. But then, could this be the Messiah? As she goes back and tells her town, which alludes to the deity of Christ. So you see that she's really unsatisfied. She's unfinished in her approach to who Jesus is, discovering more and more of who he is through her interaction with him and knowing him. May I never be satisfied with my life of worship. I always want more of him. If you run across someone, and we all know people, Oh, I just, you know, I had a great time this morning in my worship with the Lord, and then I went and I witnessed, and then we went and we went to dinner and we, we prayed with the waitress, and, and just, uh, just is such a great time in the Lord, and, and they come across like they've got it all together, and maybe they do, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing, we want that, but sometimes those people, almost in a false sense of pride, make you feel like, wow, they've got it together and I don't. I would say some of those people are liars. They don't have it that well together. They really don't, don't know how to get deeper. They think what they have is it. May we never be satisfied. May we never come across and say, yeah, my morning time with the Lord is perfect. I'll tell you right now, mine isn't. I have a lot to learn. And the more I don't know, the more I don't know. <laughs> the more I know, the longer I spend with the Lord, the more time I realize I need with Him. And that should be a natural progression for all of us in our daily worship with Him. 
C.S. Lewis said this, if I find myself with a desire that no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And so it's that idea of being unsatisfied with our worship, that we want more of Him. We long to be in that new world with Him. We long for our new bodies. Some of you this morning just can't wait to get your new bodies. And as I get older, I want that more and more. The Lord is gracious. And then seventh and last, we are to be worshipers that are unending. Now this is kind of a short point. But of course we're made to worship God forever. That's the whole goal of heaven is to be before Him and worshiping Him forever. But until then, everything we do, everything we are, is our reasonable act of worship, as Paul says in Romans 12. So summing all this up, we must learn to worship in the midst of trials, sickness, joy, in our thanksgiving, in our loss, in fear, and a lot of fear going around this week for the coronavirus, right? You've been to the stores? Have you seen people panicking? Have you seen the hoarding that's going on? People cutting in front of each other in traffic and in, in lines and taking care of number one. There's a lot of fear. But as believers in Christ, we are to worship Him through that time. And sometimes even when we think no one else cares, we are to worship because we know God cares. And after all, doesn't that just sum up what life is all about? That's everything. Sickness, joy, thanksgiving, loss, fear, no one caring for us. That is our life. But like David, we can learn to bless his name and praise him at the end of our evening song. The more we pursue and desire our Father, our Abba, the one who knows us better than we know ourselves, then the more we will want to spend time with him. And letting our lives be a reflection of his grace and his mercy, wiping his feet with our tears, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, wherever we are, in whatever circumstances we're in, we are to worship. On his deathbed, Charles Wesley, who was the great hymn writer, dictated these words to his wife as his last hymn. In age and feebleness extreme, who shall a helpless worm redeem? Jesus, my only hope thou art, strength of my failing flesh and heart. Oh, could I catch one smile from thee and drop into eternity. That sounds like the last song of an unsatisfied worshiper, but the first song of an unending worshiper as he passed into glory. Our Father earnestly seeks those people, Jesus said, to worship him in spirit and truth, with heart and mind, with emotion and with knowledge. He's seeking you to worship that way. He's seeking you this morning to worship that way. Victor Minatola is a worship leader and a media designer. He has a blog where he frequently writes about his life experiences and his experiences as a worship leader. But mostly as it relates to his young family. He has young kids, kids who are like two and three years old, a couple of daughters, I think. He wrote this in a blog recently. And I quote, 
I learned a few years ago from Dan Kimball that one of the Greek words that we translate as worship is proskuneo, which translates directly as to kiss towards. I love that. It's full of action and love and devotion. I am reminded of the woman of ill repute who wet Jesus' feet with her tears, drying them with her hair, kissing his feet, and anointing them with expensive perfume. From the moment he entered the room, she hadn't stopped kissing towards him. Well, this morning I woke up with someone's water bottle in the back of my neck. Bella, my daughter, is normally an early riser. Even though our clocks fell back an hour, her waking is still ahead an hour. So she had popped into our bed around 5 o'clock a.m. or so. My wife, Christine, was already up and exercising, which I need to get to myself. And Bella had fallen back asleep. So back to waking up with Bella's water bottle in the back of my neck. I, I tried to dig it softly out, trying not to wake her, when she wraps her arm around me and kisses my shoulder, kisses my cheek, kisses my neck. Just these soft little kisses, each one saying, I love you, Daddy, unprovoked. Now, I didn't tell her, Bella, if you love me, you'll kiss towards me. Now, this was an outpouring of her love on her own. She was kissing me because she loved me, because she knows how much I love her. Those are sweet kisses, I said. I love you, Daddy, she replied. And I imagined with only a glimmer what God must feel when we kiss towards him as an outpouring of our love and devotion for him. I love you, Daddy. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, it is a hard sermon to preach, a hard sermon to get through, because I know my life often doesn't fall into these seven categories. I think so much about myself. I'm selfish in my day. I'm selfish in my time. Sometimes I listen to the wrong things, and I focus on the wrong things that are idols in my life. And I confess that to you this morning. Lord, would you help us as a body of believers to be true worshipers, ones who are unquenchable, undignified, unsatisfied, unending. Lord, all these points that really point to you, the point to a lifestyle of worship each and every day, to honor you and to love you and to blow kisses to you, telling you that we love you, unprovoked, not forced, Lord, would you help us to see beyond Sunday morning services? Would you help us to see beyond an hour in the morning? But Lord, that every single moment of our day is to be spent with a life that is on that altar, as Paul said, living sacrifices. That is our reasonable act of worship. So move us, Lord, in that direction, even as Rancho Baptist Church continues to grow and as we continue to figure out what life is like through this, this pandemic virus. Lord, cause us to be true worshipers that rise above all this fear and all this uncertainty that people can see Christ in us and want to know more about him. Let this be a time we can put the gospel before us to lead people to Christ. We thank you, Lord, for this time this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.